you very much. It's very nice to be here. Um, I'm going to talk about some of my recent work on food insecurity and fat, um, which I've, is something I've been working on for about five years. My talk's sort of modular. I'll present various models and ideas and experiments, and um, you know, to some extent, we could stop after any one of the modules. So, if you want to just ask questions, ask them at the time when we're dealing with that particular study. I'm very happy to take your questions, just indicate uh, that, that you'd like to ask something because we can talk about that then and if we get to the end of the hour and I haven't had all of the modules, that doesn't matter, we can just stop. So uh, I try to give my talks like a journalist, which is I kind of give away the punchline at the beginning so that if the sub-editor decides that we need to cut the article halfway through, yeah, you've had all the main messages. Um, and so my talk is entitled Food Insecurity and Fatness from evolutionary ecology to social science, or vice versa. I suppose what I try and do in life is understand both the, uh, the kind of evolutionary biological science relating to topics and the social scientific questions, and try and do justice to both of those things simultaneously, right? So it's not a question of ignoring one in order to say something simple about the other. It's actually trying to, to, to kind of treat those two things alike and, and actually do equal justice to both of them and find out what the commonalities are uh, in both sides. So, uh, hence my, my talk. Um, so, what has evolutionary thinking contributed to our understanding of human obesity? Well, I think the, the kind of meme that's out there is this, is this kind of uh, what I call the kind of no-breaks uh, no hypothesis, which really comes you know, as well encapsulated in this quote from Randy Nessian and George C. Williams' book, our dietary problems, by which they mean presumably the obesity crisis, arise from a mismatch between tastes evolved for Stone Age conditions, scare quotes, and their likely effects today. So fat, sugar and salt were in short supply through all of our evolutionary history. Almost everyone, almost all of the time, would have been better off, uh, would have been better off with more of these substances and it was consistently adaptive to want more. So the idea here is that in the ancestral environment, there was never enough sugar and fat. So humans kind of don't have any breaks that say, you've consumed enough sugar and fat, now you need to stop. Um, so you put them in a modern environment, and this mismatch plays out, and they all become uh, uh, obese because they eat too much sugar and too fat. So th this is, I would say, the single most successful idea in all of evolutionary psychology. You meet people who are very skeptical about evolutionary psychology. They say, oh, that thing about sugar and fat, that, that is true. I don't buy any of the rest of it, but the thing about sugar and fat, yeah, that's definitely right. And the sad thing is that we know that it's not true. We know that it's wrong, okay? And um, we know it's wrong because actually people do have appetite limiters on eating sugar and fat, and there's really good evidence that that's the case. One of the nicest kind of case studies of this comes from um, uh, Berber pre-feeding, pre-marriage feeding. So in um, North African Berbers and many other groups in North and West Africa, there's this cultural ideal that you should be well covered and nice and, and fat when you marry, if you're a woman. And so in the pre-marriage um, phase, young women are sequestered in these marriage tents or marriage huts, where they're fed loads and loads of sweet, fatty food, right, to, uh, um, you know, to fatten them up so they'll be in a kind of the culturally valued fat state for, for, for marrying. There's very little systematic data on what happens in these, but there's one lovely study from the journal Appetite way back in 1983. And what, they, what this 
study seems to show is that generally this is not very successful. Okay? The women put on one or two kilos at most, and many of them don't put on any, anything at all. Despite being squashed in this tent, with, I mean, you know, it should be an evolutionary psychological kind of, you know, own, sort of open goal with this, right? You put someone in a tent and you bring them sugar and fat, and allegedly they don't have any adaptations to, you know, to limit their intake, they should just become enormously obese immediately. In fact, they don't put on very much weight, if any at all. And the reason is that they find sweet, they're just fed up of eating sweet fat foods. They, you know, they find they have no appetite for them. However much people say, you need to eat this now, you know, they don't want it because they're sitting around not doing very much. And uh, they've had too much sugary fat food. And, uh, and so this thing called negative allesthesia, which is previously pre pleasant foods become unpleasant when you have too much of them, kicks in big time. And what this study basically showed, showed was that actually when you're given sweet foods all day, every day, they become horrible. They become disgusting and you really don't want to eat Okay, so this whole idea that there are no kind of evolved mechanisms to sort of limit sugar and fat... Um, is problematic, to say the least. In fact, it's much more likely that we have embodied mechanisms that are quite good at regulating our, uh, our, our caloric consumption, including of sweet and, and fat foods. We know that other animals do. We know that people, so marathon runners, for example, can go from running no miles a week to at certain times of year to running 100 miles a week other times of year, so expending probably 15,000 more calories a week and their weight doesn't change by more than two or three hundred grams. And they say, well, when I'm running, well, I'm just hungrier, right? But when I'm not, you know, when I'm not running, I, I, I'm not so hungry. And their weight stays the same. So this sort of suggests that we do have homeostatic mechanisms that govern our caloric intake. And the idea that we wouldn't have any is bizarre. I mean, you know, every animal has to sort of, you know, have some, some sort of homeostatic mechanism. So, uh, so I, I don't think this idea in, in, in a simple form works. Quite, you know, that there's just no kind of evolved brain. Not least because... Almost everyone in this room has a perfectly normal BMI that you would have found, uh, you know, you would have found, uh, um, you would find amongst populations living under hunter-gatherer conditions. And yet you all live in this world with loads of manufactured sweet and fatty food. So I mean, none of you are sweet. So yeah, how is that like, making sense? So the idea in its simple form, sort of appealing as it is as a kind of mismatch meme, I think falls down in some ways. And I think it also falls down when you try and confront the social science understanding of, of the obesity epidemic. Um, because not, every, not all social groups, not all populations, are affected by, uh, by obesity to the same extent. So, um, for, for, for example, uh, it's an example I like to use. If it were the case that we all just have these unregulated appetites for sugary and fat food, then it would seem like the more money you have, the fatter you should be, right? Because you know, the more you can spend on all these sh sugary foods for which you have an evolved motiv uh, motivation. But let's compare two groups of people, right? Um, university professors in the USA and homeless people in the USA. One group have very good incomes, uh, you know, could buy potentially, can spend as much as, you know, spend thousands of dollars a year on food. So potentially you'd think under the sort of mismatch argument they should really, you know, overconsume a lot. The other group of people we know are very often skipping meals, are very often can't, you know, get enough food and go to bed hungry, and are often, you know, having to get food from all kinds of sources like food pantries and dumpsters and stuff like that. And, you know, you'd think on the face of it, it ought to be much thinner because they can't satisfy these evolved motivations. 
can I ask you know ask you to guess who do you think has the higher rate of obesity in America? University professors or homeless people? It's homeless people, right? Enormous. Okay, so this tells us there's kind of a bit more going on here than just species. Typically, we've got no evolved mechanism. There's something there's something else happening, right? If we look at where obesity falls in terms of the deciles of the poverty line, this is the US population, it really falls most heavily on poor women, women at or below the federal poverty line in the US. That's where, actually, there is quite a lot of obesity in, in all, all sectors of the population, and that, that needs addressing. But really, that's where, the, that's where the burden falls. And it just seems to me that the mismatch idea alone doesn't give you any handle, really, on why that would be. Uh, if anything, it sort of ought to lead to the intuition it should be the opposite way around. And similarly, I'm sorry, this graphic probably isn't really showing up there at the, at the back, but it's, it's a plot of income inequality of countries, the Gini coefficient, against their national rate of um, overweight or obesity, I forget which. And what this shows is that uh, that rate varies a lot among affluent countries. So uh, countries like Japan and Switzerland, uh, which ha you know, have lower income inequality, also have, tend to have a lower rate of uh, obesity. Countries like the USA and uh, Mexico, if we could see it, have very high rates of obesity and very unequal. So obviously within those countries, it's falling particularly on poor women. And then when you compare the aggregate of countries, uh, the more unequal countries um, uh, uh, have a higher rate of obesity. So from a social science point of view, the mismatch idea alone doesn't enormously help you, or it's certainly not sufficient. Uh, to, you know, all of these rates are relatively high by historic standards, so, so there might be a sort of move in the, uh, you know, in the central tendency of the distribution as we've changed towards modern energy-dense diets. But you, there's other stuff going on, right, which is to do with the social distribution of, of experience. Uh, and I suppose the talk I'm trying to give today, um, you know, it's not particularly novel. Other people have, have tried to do this too, but it's just trying to say, you know, we, we need to understand that. We need to, in, in our evolutionary ideas about obesity and fat, we, we kind of need to be able to account for these kinds of phenomena. Okay, so we start from thinking about fat as a good thing, right? as an adaptive vascular. We have adipose tissue, we have it for a good reason, it has biological function. So it's not just, you know, fat gets a bad, it's a bad press, because you only ever hear it in the context of people are too fat, but fat's really good, okay, it's, it's a, you know, it has multiple functions, it keeps you warm, it's important for reproduction if you're a female, but above all else, it's an energy store. Right? This, this is an adaptation that, that many animals have and, and humans have that allows them to store energy in their body, and that's actually a very useful thing to do. So we sort of start from a simple kind of adaptive uh, premise that in the, you know, in the first instance, the, the capacity to store um, uh, energy in, in the form of adipose tissue is an adaptive one. And so let's start to think about how, how do behavioural ecologists think about fat. And um, I'm going to present here a, a very simple model that's just taken from our, our paper that's cited there. Uh, this model is not unique with us. There have been, I mean, there've been adaptive behavioural ecological models like this going back to work, the work of Stephen Lima and John McNamara and Andy Higginson and lots of others that long predated us. But we, we put this model in the paper to try and talk people through the argument in a very simple way. So our model is really rather simple. So let's imagine you're an organism, a person if you like, who uh, is going through life and um, may or may not be encountering food in every time period. And if you do encounter food in that time period, you've got to decide how much of it to eat. 
And we assume that you need, so in this model everything's in arbitrary units, so you need one unit of energy a day just to keep your body running. Okay? Um, and any, anything you eat above and beyond that one unit is going to be converted into adipose tissue and therefore stored as energy. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's what's going to happen. So, so the decision you're facing, the adaptive decision is, how much do I eat? Uh, do I just eat the one unit or do I eat more than that? And we assume that the goal of the organism is to maximise its long-term survival. And we model the prob probability of survival in a very particular way that's kind of important to why this model works. Which is, and again, I'm sorry for the small graphic at the back, but um, what we assume is if the amount of energy in your body drops to zero, then you die. That's really bad. You need to not have that happen. Um, which is, you know, a rather abrupt thing. We know as people become emaciated, in fact, they can metabolise uh, uh, lean mass and there's various things they can do. But nonetheless, it remains the case that if you didn't eat at all for long enough, you would die. So we assume that there's a kind of cliff edge that you don't want the energy in your body to drop below that point or your probability of survival declines very abruptly towards zero. So you don't want to, in, this, you know, in terms of solving this adaptive problem, you never want to have too little energy in your body. But we also assume in this model that there are costs to having too much. Remember that extra energy that you ingest is going to be stored as adipose tissue. And we assume that storing adipose tissue, which makes you heavier, you know, has, has certain costs, uh, in the end is going to be detrimental to your survival because there are locomotive costs of getting around, you can't run so fast, you can't, you can't work so efficiently, you can't you know, chase down prey, you, you're more vulnerable to uh, being predated, you know, all kinds of bad stuff can happen to you, there's locomotor and, and, and circulatory stresses of, of carrying more, more mass and so on. So we assume that there are also costs if, you're, if your fat reserves get bigger, costs to your survival, but crucially we assume that these are much less abrupt, right? I mean, starving to death is a cliff edge, but we assume that the cost of having a bit more uh, fat mass is more of a gentle kind of sloping away. So in the limit, it would be very bad when, you know, if your fat mass became enormous, but this is a much gentler slope. And that's important, this, this kind of idea that there's an asymmetry between the cost of being a, a, having a bit too much stored energy and not having enough uh, is very central to what we're saying. Okay, so I'm gonna cut a story very, very short here. You can use something called stochastic dynamic programming to solve for the optimal uh, behavior in this model. Right? If I'm wanting to maximize my long-term survival, what do I optimally have to, uh, to, to do? And the answer is it turns out to depend on the probability that you will encounter food in every time period. So if you're sure to encounter food in every time period, that's the P equals one line here, then you don't really need to store anything, right? because in every time period you need one unit of energy, but you can find one unit of food with absolute certainty. So in fact, you have this kind of just-in-time metabolism where if your fat reserves are anywhere above two, you don't eat anything. And when they drop to below two, you eat one unit to make up for the one you're gonna use in that time period. So you're not storing much, you're not needing to store much because the food is there in the environment. But if you drop this, this parameter P, which is the probability of being able to find food every day lower, you start getting these kind of precautionary strategies being optimal where, so for example, if P equals 0.9, then if you drop below 3, you should actually eat one unit. And if you drop to, to 1, you should eat two units. Why is that? Well, because there's a chance that in the next time period there won't be any food. You, know, you won't manage to find it. So, so what you should do is every, you know, everything you need to be sure of not falling off that cliff edge, not just 
today, but also tomorrow in the event that tomorrow I'm unlucky. And similarly, you, know, you can see the logic. As we drop this p parameter lower, you actually start getting um, individuals starting to eat when their current fat reserves are still quite high, like you know, five units or whatever. And also, if they do ever drop to one, they don't just eat the one they need for the next time period, they actually eat five. Right? Because you've got to insure yourself against the possibility you might have a run of bad luck starting tomorrow. Is everyone clear about that? So it's a simple model. What does it predict? Well, if you actually... So these are optimal strategies. You can show mathematically they're optimal. But if you actually simulate environments in which individuals are, are finding food in each time period with the given probability and are following the optimal strategy for that, when the probability of finding food is 1, their body weight is low, they don't store anything, and there's no variation in their body weight because it's always 1 every day. You know, 1 goes out and 1 goes in. But if you go down to, say, probability of 0.6, then average body weights are much higher because they're storing a lot, but they also vary a lot because they get runs of bad luck where they drop down and then they, then they you know, get runs of good luck where they compensate and there's a kind of feast and famine aspect to it. Right? This is under optimal behaviour. So this is not, I'm not suggesting this is how people do behave, but this is how, you know, in some simple kind of adaptive sense, they ought to behave. So th there's nothing novel in this model and people have made this point many times before, but you ought to expect animals to respond to parameters of their environment like the certainty with which food can be found and if it can be found certainly they you know they don't need to eat so much and they can or, or they don't need to their energy balance can can be less positive if you like um, uh, and um, uh, the consequences they should have lower body weights and less variation in body weight and as as their in food insecurity becomes greater that's you know the chances of them finding food in the, in the next time period become greater. What they should do is overconsume when food is available in order to buffer the periods where, when it won't be. Okay. So from a simple kind of behavioural ecological perspective, we all expect people to be fat where it's difficult for them to get food. You know, to put it very, very crudely. Does this idea have any kind of resonances in human social science? Well, it does. So um, back in 1995, there's this great paper, two-page paper in, in the journal Paediatrics, by a, a paediatrician called William H. Dietz called Hung, Does Hunger Cause, Cause Obesity? And this is just one of those great sort of random little papers that I really like. And um, this guy's a doctor and, and he, he says, look, you know, in my clinic, I, I, I'm seeing this seven-year-old African-American girl who's really obese, she's really fat, and her parents are both obese too. And, and, you know, and I'm talking to them about their lives and you know, what's going on. And what they tell me is they're on food stamps and they're always running out of food and they're really hungry. And, uh, you know, this has given me a thought. Maybe not having enough food makes you fat, right? Because, uh, and what he sort of speculates is that um, the periodic shortages they're experiencing because their food stamps run out or whatever are sort of motivating them then when their food stamps replenish at the beginning of the month to go out and get lots of energy-dense food and compensate for their hunger by, by, by eating. And he, and he sort of says, look, maybe there's this kind of psychological, physiological adaptation to episodic food shortage in which you overconsume in, in the coming period. And maybe that would explain why you get, particularly amongst you know, poor women, you get these high rates of, of obesity. And yeah, he just sort of stuck it out there as, as, a, um, as a possibility. I mean, interestingly, in behavioral ecology, the prediction that food insecurity would lead to Greater fat storage was already already well established by 1995, and he didn't find it because it was in a different literature, and he was a pediatrician. But it's very much the same idea, I think. Um, 
But this paper led to a huge kind of literature, which is called the food insecurity literature or the hunger obesity paradigm, you see it referred to you know, in honour of this paper. So what people started to do, particularly in North America, was uh, measure food insecurity, this concept that kind of came from Dieter's work, which is the limited or uncertain ability to acquire nutritionally adequate and safe food in socially acceptable ways. So that your food stamps run out, you know, or the times of the month when you're going hungry or whatever. Um, and this, uh, you know, it was uh, standard questionnaires have been devised to come up with this, and they, they consist of questions like, the food that we bought just didn't last, and we didn't have money to buy anymore, and we worried whether our food would run out before we got money to, to buy anymore. This is, a, this is the USDA food insecurity questionnaire. It's an absolutely standard measure in nutritional surveys in North America. It's not much used in Europe yet. There's a little bit of data from France and one study of ours from Britain, um, but there are masses of studies from the USA and also actually from, from South America too. It's been translated into Spanish and Portuguese and it's, it's used widely. And there's been a lot of interest since Dietz about in, whether, in what's called the hunger obesity paradox, which is whether this, despite being about questionnaire which is about not having enough food actually predicts that people will be obese or overweight. So we did a systematic search of the literature in 2015 and are just restricting to food insecurity because other people have written about sort of similar constructs to do with stress and uncertainty and, and, and economic uncertainty and so on and to ask whether they predict obesity but we just stuck to this food insecurity measure. We found 125 published studies which is quite a lot um, that's, that had given this measure, usually cross-sectionally, and, and then measured people's uh, body mass. And so this 125 published studies actually reported 301 associations, because quite often they'll have different subsamples of men and women, or different ethnic groups and things like that. So we actually found 301 um, associations, which we uh, interrogated with a, a meta-analysis um, which is published in this, in this paper here. So just to, to recap, this, this data from 125 papers in here, that like 80% of them are from North America, possibly, possibly more. Some of them are just little opportunity samples of whoever people happen to be studying. Some of them are really good nationally representative surveys, particularly the NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Survey, which is a, a, a big, well-designed North American survey which has been studying this for for many of its waves, in fact, this, this question. They all measured food insecurity with the standard questionnaires, uh, like the USDA food insecurity uh, module. The overall take-home is that the odds of, of, of a high body weight outcome, and the studies vary on where they draw the line between normal and high, and exactly how they, you know, we have to do some adjustment for that, but basically the odds of a high body weight are 21% higher for humans that score as food insecure on these questionnaires rather than food, uh, food secure. Just give you a, a, a forest plot. I, I, you're familiar with these forest plots. So basically, um, what these give you is the sort of summary effect size and, our, and the confidence interval for it, um, for the association between food insecurity and high body weight. So to orient you, uh, if, if the central blob is at one, that means there's no association. The odds are the same, whether you're food secure or food insecure. If they're greater than one, then food insecure people have a greater odds of high body weight. If they were less than one, it would be lower odds. And then the, the horizontal bar gives you a sense of the 95% confidence interval. 
And what the various rows represent is just different subsets of the data, which I'll now talk you, talk you through. Um, so overall, as I said, the odds were 21% higher that, that uh, you know, if you were proved insecure on these questionnaires, uh, you, you would come out that you would also be um, um, overweight or, or obese. Correlation doesn't prove causation, of course, but these are, at the very least, food insecurity and obesity coexist you know, in the same people. Now, uh, an obvious kind of uh, uh, rejoinder to this would be, yeah, but sure, well, poor people are food insecure and poor people are, over, are also obese without there being any direct link between those two. Merely their common correlation with income is going to produce that association. Well, some of our associations were adjusted for NSES uh, measure, and it seems to make no difference. Of course, maybe the SES measures aren't very good. Maybe there's more things you could adjust for. That's always true. But nonetheless, adjustment for SES doesn't really seem to affect this, which suggests these things. Their link is not just a, a simple kind of um, consequence of, of low-income low individuals being both food insecure and, and, and heavy. The next three lines are really interesting. If we partition our data set into the, the, the samples that were samples of women, the samples that were samples of men, and, and the mixed samples, you see that there is an association in mixed samples, um, but really there's a strong association in women-only in women samples and there's absolutely nothing going on in the men. So the mixed samples is presumably just because the women within the mixed samples that you know, drive the association. So this seems to be something about women's adiposity. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time today talking about that. Maybe it's a question people want to discuss. I think it's interesting. Um, and we know that there's lots of things about women's adiposity that's different from men's anyway. So for example, the relationship between socioeconomic status and adiposity is different for women and men, as I already showed you actually on an earlier slide. Uh, women have a higher level of adiposity at all, uh, overall. Um, adiposity is more important to reproduction for women than it is for men. So th there's a bunch of other things going on, and we you know, have a discussion of that in the paper. But to the extent that this seems to be a real association, it's, this is really something that, you know, this is about women. And, and there doesn't seem to be anything going on in the men, and that's interesting. And not something our simple kind of adaptive model would, would predict, particularly. The other thing is, um, most of the data is from North America, as I say, but there's a little bit of stuff from lower-income countries, there's a bit from Uganda, um, there's a bit from a few other, uh, other sort of lower income countries. And there, in those studies, you don't see it at all. Um, so, despite me having been rude about the mismatch hypothesis, it does seem that a, a, you know, a necessary condition for you to see this association is something about the, the, you know, the Western food regime. I mean, I think actually what's going on is quite, what we suggest in the paper is going on is quite interesting. The rather few studies of low-income countries suggest that food insecure people in low-income countries really want to be fatter. Uh, they really valorise being fatter. But they actually can't do it because they're so, so food insecure that they, you know, our model relies on the fact that you, when you do find food, you can actually get a lot of calories in within you know, the day. And, and of course... The, this, this association, you're not going to see it. In fact, the food insecure people are f so food insecure or, or the food they do have available is so uh, energy poor that they're unable in the times when they do have access to food to, to build up those reserves. So it seems like in high-income countries when you're food insecure, if you're a woman, you have both sort of method and motive. Like you have the motive for eating more because you're experiencing uncertainty and you might experience uncertainty in the future. Uh, but you also have the method in that when you do have access to food, the food you have access to is incredibly energy dense. So just, I just wanted to say, and this is a brief aside, um, 
people often so I give talks about food insecurity, and people are often incredulous, right? We're so we're so used to the idea that we live all our problems are problems of affluence that uh, it's very hard for us to make the imaginative leap to think that there might be people in our country who don't have enough to eat, right? Who actually go hungry. But you know, the Trussell Trust, which is the main food bank charity in this country, gave out uh, 1.3 million emergency food parcels last year. So that's quite a lot of stuff. These are people who are going to their doctor primarily, or a citizen advice bureau saying, I, I can't afford to get food, you know, can you give me an emergency voucher? That's like over a million people. This is a report published by the Environmental Audit uh, Committee of the House of Commons, so it's a cross-party select committee of MPs, just last week, January the 8th. Uh, you know, there's a long quote there, I won't give you all, but basically, food insecurity is a significantly growing issue in the UK, Figures from the Food and Agricultural Organisations show that levels are among the worst, if not the worst, in Europe, particularly for children. Uh, it says the government has failed to recognise and respond to the growing problem of food insecurity in the UK. I can cite you any number of kind of reports and social science investigations that say the same, particularly linking it to universal credit, which is, as you know, there's a delay when people initially get it and they often get sanctioned and stuff like that, so they often have financial shortfalls. And it says, interestingly and encouragingly from my point of view, the government's obesity strategy makes no mention of food insecurity and uh, blah, blah, blah. Basically, this is MPs, you know, not me. We call on government to appoint a minister for hunger. Right, that's a pretty dramatic thing to say, right, in this you know, extraordinarily rich country. So people are often incredulous say that you're just, you're a nut, right, if you think that somehow our current problem, you know, there's people who are hungry in this country. Clearly the problem is that people are, you know, greedy or whatever. But I'm just saying, you know, there are people out there saying that that's not true, that there are real problems of periodic, not, not, not absolute famine, but periodic uh, interruptions to the food su supply you know, in this country. So it is something we need to think about. Okay, this is your question. What are the mechanisms driving the association? I think that's really interesting, and I'll just I'll quickly talk you through one study, and then I'll go off in a slightly different direction. Uh, this paper that's just came out, oh, it's probably illegible, but it's a paper in Behavioural and Brain Sciences. Ours came out in 2017, and then, which was really about the ultimate level of explanation, and this, this one is about the proximate level of psychology, so the two sort of nice companion pieces by um, Patrick Anselm and Ono Guntergun. Um, basically what they say is the experience of uncertainty in, in, in whether your foraging is rewarded, so they're basing this primarily on animal data, is actually a, uh, something that, that stimulates your, you know, your, your appetite and the hedonic value of food. So if you, you know, the fact that you don't get it every time you look for it makes you want it more and like it more when you get it. And they basically say that this would explain the, the various associations if the experience that sometimes you have a frustrated desire to forage means that when you forage successfully, the hedonic value of that reward is greater. Your, your behaviour, your consumptive and repetitive behaviours are then kind of intensified. So that's, that's a sort of clear prediction right, from, you know, from, from this paper, is that this should be to do with the fact that when you do get food, you then want to eat more, which I suppose is, you know, is sort of obvious along the lines I've just said. Now, we, we wanted to follow that up. We've done an initial um, study. I don't think the study is brilliant, but you, know, we, you have to start somewhere. Um, we just wanted to know, do people who are food insecure, and rate themselves as food insecure, do they eat more energy-dense stuff when you give them the chance to? And it turned out it's not the only study, it's just the only British one. And it's just very simple. We just took 126 adult volunteers from Newcastle. This is a community sample. They're not going to be hugely food insecure, because many of them are linked to the university in one way or another. But anyway, we gave them the standard sort of measures. 
And then we said, uh, well, we said this whole study is about people's food preferences, and there's a kind of mock taste test where people are given a standard array of chocolate and uh, crisps and popcorn to taste and, and comment on. They had to rate the foods in, in various ways and stuff like that. And then we kind of said, okay, well, th thanks very much, you're done now. Um, uh, there's just some questionnaires to fill in, and um, we've got to throw away the food now because, because we, you know, we have to throw it away between participants. So, you know, just stay and do your questionnaires. Uh, there, there's no uh, hurry and just eat up as much of the food as you like. And we left them unobserved. And, of course, then we weighed the food plates afterwards. Um, interestingly, what they consume is enormously variable. Some people consume, well, consume 500 calories in, the, in this task, which is a, a quarter of your you know, recommended daily intake. And some people will consume 20 calories. Uh, and that's completely uncorrelated with how hungry they said they were before, which is quite interesting. Uh, so there was a lot of variation. So this is sort of quite an interesting method. Again, I'm going super fast, but the paper's published. Um, caloric intake, well, for what it's worth, you do get a significant association. The, the, the association with food insecurity on the questionnaire measure and then how much they eat in this uh, you know, is uh, actually significantly positive and, and the females are not in the males. It's exactly, given the meta-analysis, certainly exactly what we would have predicted. I mean, clearly, we're not explaining, there's a lot of variation we're not explaining there, and there's this enormous gulf. Some people are eating four or 500 calories, and most people are not eating much at all. So yeah, it's a kind of a weird thing. But for what it's worth, I think you know, it does initially. Uh, and we also found, by the way, with BMI as well, the same thing, that um, the food insecurity measure predicted BMI in, in males and not females, as the meta-analysis would have led us to predict. So it's quite a sort of interesting, um, simple study, actually just suggesting, well, there's something in this, in this idea that people who are coming from a life where they feel food insecure, and then suddenly you, you, know, you give them this, uh, this energy-dense food. Uh, and this was mediated by the fact that the food insecure women liked chocolate more. And people like chocolate a lot, don't they? Right? That's kind of that ceiling. But uh, for what it's worth, food insecure women liked chocolate a bit more. And 90% of the calories in this task that people consume is the chocolate. They're not much interested in the the other stuff is that, that you know, if you're going to consume a lot, they, it's the chocolate they, they go for. Uh, slight shift of gear now. So a lot of my empirical work these days is on the foraging starling, uh, which is uh, a wonderful system, which is really um, yeah, interesting for examining these kinds of questions. So the starling is a gregarious pastorine bird that uh, you can see round and about the place, not so much in Oxford, sadly, these days, because they've declined in Oxfordshire by 70% over the last 30 years, but there's plenty of them in Northumberland, where I live. Um, so, starlings forage in this particular way that they go around grassland, probing holes to look for soil invertebrates. And at uh, certain times of year that goes really well, but when the ground becomes very dry or very frozen, uh, or as the winter wears on, they get kind of less and less successful at this and they have to probe more and more to find food and they often go on periods without food. So. Um, it's their sort of nice model of food insecurity, right? You know, how often are you finding food when you, when, you, when you forage around? Sometimes you, know, you very reliably find it, sometimes you have to work much, much harder. And what do we know about starlings? Guess what? In the winter, uh, you know, when, when food is uh, rarer, they get much fatter. Okay, so, uh, now, I think birds are a great sort of system for testing some of these principles because we might regulate our body mass to within a kilo or two either way, but if you weigh 70 grams and you're wanting to fly, you need to regulate your body mass within a gram or half a gram. I mean, we know that their flight performance is affected by even a few extra grams of fat, but on the other hand, we also know they can starve to death in three days. So you really are 
you know, you really are regulating very tightly to a kind of optimal uh, body mass. And birds are very plastic in their body mass, which is why they're kind of interesting to study. So just to give you an example of, uh, you do see the kinds of dynamics we're talking about. This is a simple study. We caught um, two groups of six-month-old, uh, two groups of 40 six-month-old starlings. We kept them in, uh, in aviaries, uh, four different aviaries. So one group of 40, the ad-lib group, had access to energy-dense food all day, every day. So they just bowls of food around in their aviary. And the other group, unpredictable, is exactly the same, except for five hours every day on a weekday, we take their food away. And that starts at unpredictable times. So and sometimes you wake up and we've already taken it away. You want to eat for the first five hours. Sometimes the last five hours before you go to bed, suddenly there's no food. Sometimes it's five hours in the middle of the day or whatever. And we do this every day uh, for, for um, five days a week. And we kept them for 21 weeks and, and weighed them regularly before releasing them. And what you see is, so this is bird BMI, this body condition score. The reason that they're negative is uh, you know, not an interesting one. I mean, they're all negative on average. This is because these were young birds and our reference, our reference BMI curves are made on older birds. So uh, they're all negative, but the absolute value, th this is uh, weight adjusted for length. So, so it's, it's basically BMI. And what you see is that the ad-lib groups after 21 weeks are a couple of grams lighter. Grams doesn't sound much, but when you're a 70 gram bird, but, you know, that's, that's not nothing, it's not negligible. And this is, uh, this is you're quite a reliable finding. There have been many studies of starlings. In fact, the original ones were done here in, in Oxford and Whiteham um, that have shown these kinds of effects. Uh, so it's an interesting system where you, you know, just giving these birds, experimentally assigning these birds this, this unpredictability leads them to be a bit fatter in the long run. But what we really want the starling for is we want to study the, the, the fine dynamics of this, uh, the fine temporal dynamics. of so, so if we're right and there's some causal impact of food insecurity, then you ought to see something different about their foraging. And, uh, you know, so really we were interested in the sort of microstructure of the behaviour. You know, you, do you get up and eat more? Do you, you, know, you forage for longer? Do you, do you forage for the same amount of time but eat more you know, when, you do, when you do succeed or, or whatever? So... Um, the system we've designed to study this is called the social foraging system. So our birds live in aviaries, and these, it's like, imagine living in a world where you kind of live in, live in a house and there's a vending machine, and you have to interact with this vending machine to get your food, right? And, and the vending machine also weighs you. So, so it really gives us a lot of, in, uh, of information of what's going on. So the, the starling comes in and perches on the social foraging system. All of our birds wear an RFID tag on their leg, so we know who's checked in. Um, uh, this is also a, a digital balance, so they weigh themselves, and then the machine uh, has a light on and they peck for, for a reward. This hopper uh, rises up and, and gives them food, and by how often they peck and when they peck, you know, we can understand the structure of their foraging behaviour, and but from this we can understand their, their weights. But just to sort of show you how this works, so yeah, this is just sort of every day in the aviary, birds are hanging about. Um, this was the prototype system, sorry, it's not a super high quality thing, this is a, here he goes, so uh, bird gets in, the bird has, the machine has to detect him, uh, yeah, so that light went on, so that means he was detected, so he, he then uh, presses the key to forage and, and forages, is his friend looking on, um, and 
uh, yeah, yeah, you get the they get the general idea. So they'll visit this many hundreds of times a day. So we're, we're getting like we used to weigh our birds once a week. We now weigh our birds a hundred times a day, and we don't have to catch them. So it's quite good for their for their welfare. And then you know, when he's ready, he has another go, and then he flies off or, or whatever. Okay. So I'm just going to present a simple uh, study done by one of my uh, MS students last year. Just a small study, it's the first one we've ever done with this system, but I, you know, I think it's quite, quite interesting. We just had three pairs of birds, where you just saw one of them. And um, they were each housed in Avery with one of these systems, and they're in closed economy, which means all of their food is coming from the system. So all of the foraging they're doing is you know, hopefully recorded by us. And what we did, we wanted to simulate you know, going into a more food insecure secure period like the winter. So we started off for the first week, every time they pecked the SFS would give them access to the food. And then it kind of got worse. Then we went to, in the second week, you know, only 40% of the time would we give them access to food. So they're suddenly experiencing their foraging is not, their attempts to forage are not you know, met with success quite a lot of the time. And then we went down you know, further to, to, um, to 0 0.2. Now we haven't gone back up again yet, but it's something we need to do. We're going to do that in our next experiment. So we sort of, we're idea is you know, the gradual kind of depletion of resources and the greater insecurity you're, you're, you're getting. And as I say, we get a lot of data every day from, from these uh, birds. What I'm going to show you is what we do is we, there's a certain amount of experimental error because birds don't land right on the balance, and there's you know, a few things like that. So this is one bird's mass trace for a single day. What you see is, is that when they wake up, they're their minimum uh, weight for the day. And then they, they sort of have a period in the morning when they usually forage quite intensively and they put on uh, a few grams. And that tends to plateau off and they hit their maximum mass. Usually they go to bed about nine o'clock and they, they usually hit their maximum mass, mass of mass about seven and they just sort of sit on their perch a bit before, before they uh, go, go to sleep. So the two, the two times a day when they don't forage much, there's often a period, sometimes a period in the middle and then at the end of the day they, they kind of reach their target overnight mass and, and then, then they stop. So we're interested in sort of, we, we fit one of these functions to smooth out some of the measurement error variation. We fit one of these functions every day and we can extract various things like what was the daily minimum and when did that occur? What was the steepness of the slope across the first few hours? Uh, what was the daily maximum? So we can pull out these different kind of um, um, parameters. So to cut somewhat to the chase, as our food insecurity increased, as we went from the 1 to the 0.4 to the 0.2, their minimum and maximum daily masses both increased. So they're, they're at about 70 to 79 grams. Remember, this is a within-subject design, so every bird is doing every level of food insecurity. So although there's a small sample size, it's quite a tight comparison, but it's the same, same animal. Um, and uh, so here they are weighing 79 grams when the probability of reinforcement is 1, and they go up to 80 grams when it's 0.4, and uh, 81 when it's 0.2. Um, just, just as we know birds do, as they go into winter, they put on more, more fat. And so that's their maximum. Remember, each day gives you a maximum for each bird. And then that's their minimum, which is usually early in, in the morning. And uh, the slope of their mass gain across the first four hours of the day is a bit steeper. So what basically, you know, they're working harder. They get up, they're finding they're not always reinforced, so they're, you know, they're, they're working harder. Um, Can I ask you yeah. the problem with the day length? Because that's a cortisol effect. Uh, I'll take one in the morning. Absolutely, but our, our, our birds, are, these are indoor aviaries with fixed 
okay. fixed daylight, okay. fixed lighting. So, so they're on they're on long days actually. They're on 16-hour days, and uh, there's no variation over the course of the experiment. So, while we're simulating a winter, we're not simulating the day length aspect of the winter, only the change of food security. Um, and interestingly, they, what they're actually doing, perhaps slightly counterintuitive, or there's some trend, is um, they're hitting their maximum earlier in the day, although it's harder to get food. They actually seem to be hitting their, their, their maximum a little bit earlier in, in the day. So that, that sort of suggested that they're kind of working harder to get more in under this uncertainty. Um, also, the, um, the amount of crumb they eat per feed, because we can also weigh the, what's left in the machine, they're eating more crumb per feed, so they get a standardized 10 seconds when they do, when they do uh, unlock a reward. Uh, the amount, so they, they scoff more you know, when they can, which is understandable. Um, and they also, their peck rate, so how many times per hour are they visiting the machine, that also goes up. But, interestingly, it doesn't go up enough. Because right, in order to maintain the same feed rate, when the probability of reinforcement is 0.2, you need to actually visit five times as much. And they don't visit five times as much, they only visit about two and a half times as much. So they, they are upping, upping their attack on the resource, but not enough to actually compensate by the fact that the schedule is worse. But here's the key thing, and this is what's doing our heads in, actually. The amount eaten per bird per day actually goes down. Because although they're foraging more, they're not foraging enough more to offset the fact that their foraging is much less successful. So the actual crumb eaten per bird per day is a couple of grams less in the high food insecurity condition, even though they weighed more in that condition. So this is, you know, sort of blown our minds to some extent. Because the whole Anselm and Guntergen idea and our whole study, the human correlational study I just presented to you, is, is predicated on the idea that what you do is you eat more. When food, your food insecure, you eat more such that you eat more overall. Of course, when you're food insecure, it will be concentrated into the times you do have access to food. To food. But it's got to be more overall in our thinking. So the fact that these birds are putting on weight despite actually eating less overall has made us start to think differently about life. So, um, in a way, I think this first study is, is, you know, is sort of both intriguing and, and, and frustrating. So, I think we can confirm with the birds causally that increasing their food insecurity leads to weight gain. Good. Okay, so that's a big tick for the kind of ideas I've been advocating. But it looks like, and actually we've got another experiment which also in a different way seems to say the same thing, that this weight gain in the birds is despite a decrease in their food intake overall. And that's got to make us rethink um, a lot of things, right? The foods are not different, right? So our, th these birds in that experiment were just living on uh, um, uh, turkey crumb. So it's not like they should shift what type of food or the energy density of food, and that was all constant. And it's just making us wonder if we actually start need to look on the energy expenditure side of the energy ba balance equation as well. So possibly a way of becoming heavier if you're more food insecure is not just by eating more, but by perhaps doing less. Uh, two obvious things you could do less if your bird is fly around less and sing less both expensive activities. And this has just got me, just this is where I am with this week, really, into kind of looking into what do we know in humans about, about uh, um, irregular food take and food insecurity and the effects of stress and so on. 
And one of the things is that food insecurity is also, at least according to one or two studies, associated with physical activity. People who are food insecure, one of the things is they, they don't want to do so much physical activity. And of course, that would be a way of becoming heavier, wouldn't it, too? I mean, potentially. There are issues about maybe they shift the types of food that they're eating, and I think that's a whole issue I don't know anything about yet, but I need to find out about. The other thing that interests me a lot is that there's quite a literature now suggesting that a lot of the effects of food insecurity are actually mediated through depression. Uh, and now people have sort of studied that epidemiologically, and I, I don't think they've got any great, you know, expansionary theory about why that would be the case or what's going on, but a lot of the, the sort of health consequences of food insecurity seem, the negative health consequences seem to be mediated by depression. Food insecurity makes you depressed. Now, what is depressed? Well, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of things. It's usually a questionnaire measure of various kinds of experiences, but what those experiences include are things like, I didn't feel like doing anything. Or you know activities I would normally have done I couldn't you know I, I, I didn't I didn't have the motivation to do them or I wanted to sleep more you know so actually it's quite interesting I wonder what this if what these depression questionnaires are picking up is um, is that the proximate mechanism is rather different from what I suggested at the outset which is not just to do with eating more but it's also to do with changing other aspects of your of your activity maybe you're cutting down on more kind of um, um, you know, luxury type activities or, or facultative activities that you might do, but you might in the end decide, decide not to, to do. Um, so I suppose my next proposal, and this kind of leads me to wrap up really. So the NHANES is this big National Health and, and uh, Nutrition Survey, is this big nationally representative US sample where they've measured food insecurity well. And they've also measured a bunch of other things like depression, physical activity, um, they put accelerometers on, in, in some of the ways and things they put accelerometers on people so you can ask what they're doing. They also measured depression. But they also, put, they also did really detailed food diaries for a couple of days. What did you eat? When did you eat? So we know actually how much they were eating. They also know how they spaced it and what it consisted of. So I think there's a whole load of questions about, rather than just saying, oh, food insecurity predicts body weight, really trying to drill down into saying, what are the mediators of that? Are, they, are you changing your macronutrient composition? Changing the kilocalorie total? Are you controlling your physical activity? And, and oddly, although a lot of people from a kind of epidemiological perspective have looked at these data, they haven't quite asked the question in the way that I would ask it. You know, like person A will be interested in, is food insecurity a risk factor for depression? And person B will say, is food insecurity a risk factor for eating too much salt? And each of these is a kind of separate paper, but what we haven't got is the kind of complete diagram of, of the pathways by which these, these two kind of things might be um, associated. Um, that, in fact, is basically my last slide, and so we can just segue into discussion now, which we've already started doing. So.